I believe that the church needs to speak out on these issues. I, I think it's uh, too often we are silent on these issues. We are afraid of blowback on these issues, and we have to be prophetic. We can't be uh, afraid of what's uh, of the uh, of uh, the response from the, the other side. The disciple said to him, "Look, Lord, here are two swords," and he said, "That is enough." Now, did he mean two swords are enough? That's all you mean. You need, or did he mean that's enough? Don't talk to me about swords. The positive is that it has raised awareness within mental health. The negative is the stigma it has placed on anybody who has a mental health issue. Even the people at the gun clubs know that that if you have 15, 20 bullets in your magazine, you know, bad stuff can happen. Even they say that is an offense that gets you thrown out of the gun club sometimes. People that are experts in guns recognize that if you have more than three rounds in a magazine, it immediately becomes dangerous. I, you know what? I got to tell you that the person that told you that's dangerous. That's how ignorant they are. Okay, so I'm here at the uh, anti-gun rally with, is that what we're calling a side? I'm I'm going back and forth between both. I don't know what people are calling it, but... March for our lives. March, yeah, March for, for our lives. That works, okay. And I'm with two uh, clergy members. If you want to identify yourself, you can. If not, you don't have to. Sure. I'm uh, Pastor Kim Rapchak. I'm a uh, Lutheran pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. I am uh, Reverend Chad Bodgwick. I am the pastor of Koppel United Methodist Church in Koppel, PA. Okay, wonderful. And I'm actually a seminarian at uh, Trinity oh, right great. now. Okay. So, <laughs> so, okay. so, yeah, I saw that this was going on, and I kind of wanted to come and ask because I don't think people are asking questions from a Christian perspective like with a lot of this. Um, so one of the questions I want to ask is um, if you could state you know, the problem and where you think the church's responsibility is in all of this from what I see and Chad and I were just talking about idolatry a few moments ago and I think one of the biggest problems we have surrounding this whole issue of violence in the country it's manifold but the answer so many people want is an idolatrous one you cannot conquer hate and violence with hate and violence the only path to peace is through peace and love and the the christian witness is very very specific about that in a couple of days we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of martin luther king his movement was a peaceful gospel-centered one and although there's a ways to go yet he and those who marched with him moved the ball forward in a way that had never been done before because of the gospel witness now would you be surprised if i told you that you're not the first clergy member i've talked to that talked about the idolatrous nature <laughs> not at all <laughs> okay um and now when we talk about idolatry Idolatry. There are a couple different forms of idolatry. Um, according to uh, Dr. David Maxwell of Concordia Lutheran Seminary, the Missouri Synod, in his lecture on the doctrine of justification, he said that uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, said that... Um, 
that idolatry and idol was anything that you put your trust in other than God. So when we're talking about idolatry in this aspect, a lot of people are saying that your idolatry is in the worship of firearms and another form of idolatry would be in the state. If you were to put your faith in the state. Um, also, if you put your faith in people, then that is a form of idolatry. So when we're talking about idolatry, we have to be quick to recognize that it is anything that is not God that we are putting our faith in, in order uh, for our assistance for our help. Now we can, we could push it to say, well, only in salvation. But again, if we are putting things up on a pedestal as you know, we're, we're getting at here in this conversation, that that is what idol worship is. So if you're saying that the only thing, uh, that will curb all of this, this violence is, um, more guns and that the gun is the thing that is necessary to do, that can be a form of idol worship. But also if you're saying that what we need is more legislation to take away guns or to limit them or ban them and then that would that is also a form of idolatry would you say the same thing uh yeah i think when when dr king quoted amos and saying let justice roll down like waters if you look at that whole thing what it's saying is we cannot have church without action and we cannot have action without church and too often people go to church and they get their 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 good feels and then they go out and they're not worried about kids dying on the street they're more worried about clinging on to their uh to their to their their, their idols and uh you know and i'm not afraid to say that that it's an idol because it it's become the golden calf in america we are too interested in um the second amendment rights as we view them in the in the 21st century than protecting our kids uh, here and now and when we look back at some of the heroes of the faith like Martin Luther King Jr and Bonhoeffer and 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 uh, and, and so many others Martin we can yeah, we can see that uh, you know all of them are nonviolent uh, individuals, and, and they they loved God, they loved the church, they loved people. So why can't we do the same in today's society as Christians? Why are we so focused on uh, on protecting ourselves against uh, a nation that we say uh, that we need to uh, we need to honor? It's, it's, it's I saw I saw a meme. It was it was hilarious. It said, "You cannot kneel for the flag of the country that I'm afraid will oppress me." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, a few things that I would like to jump in here about is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Republican who wanted to own a gun for self-protection after, um, you know, having uh, his house uh, bombed and, you know, death threats being put against him and that sort of thing. And the reason why he couldn't get a gun permit is because he was living under democratic Jim Crow era laws in Alabama. And the reason why we have gun permits today is so we could deny black people or rather Democrats could deny black people the rights to own firearms. Um, You have to remember that the Ku Klux Klan was started by the Democrat party. The NAACP was started by the Republican party. Um, 
the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. was a Republican who was a gun owner and thought that we should own guns um, was denied a permit. Somebody they saw, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as somebody who was not fit to carry a gun. And yet, his name is being used for gun control, which is very odd because he was not in favor of, of gun control. He would not be in favor of gun control, um, it, especially at the rate that we're seeing. Now, as far as, you know, the that, that meme that he was talking about, you know, what it's saying is that, you know, we, I don't know where the, well, I do sort of know where this understanding is coming from of, you know, that we are to hold up, uh, you know, uphold our, our, our government, that we are to respect it, and which we are not, uh, by taking um, that understanding in um, Romans uh, chapter 13. Let me pull it up here real quick. It says that, um, Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God's appointment, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Now, just from that one verse, from what we know of our our constitutional representative republic, that we are the governing authorities. So, it is actually sinful for the government to be oppressing us in any way. Okay, we are not to uh, we in the United States, we cannot say that God put our government in place except by saying that God put us in place to put the government in place. You see, we are the same as a role as a king. We are the governing authority. So you can't say as a Christian that, you know, well, you have to respect the, the governing authority. And if you don't, then that is unbiblical. No, it's quite the opposite. It is very biblical for us to be distrusting of the system that we have put in place to govern us because that is our appointed position that God has appointed. God has appointed you as an American citizen to have that power in that place. Verse 2 goes on to say, So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will incur judgment. Who are the people that is being spoken of? The person who resists such authority. That could be the government that is resisting the authority of the people. They are resisting God. That is the person who is resisting people along with the government and saying that you must be subject to the government and whatever they say, that they are resisting the ordinance of God. And those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3, For rulers cause no fear for good conduct, but for bad. And that's exactly what the Second Amendment is for politicians and for our government. They have no fear of it unless they're doing something wrong. And then they fear it. And if you're doing something wrong and you know that there's retribution, what will you do? You will try and stop that power from being um, used on you. And therefore, you will try to do something like ban guns, which is resisting the ordinance of God. It goes on to say, verse 3, Do you desire not to fear authority? Do good, and you wrong. Be in fear, for it does not bear the sword in vain. 
It is God's servant to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. Somebody who protects themselves with a firearm, according to Romans chapter 13, is doing the will of God. This is God's servant. And I know that that may strike people as strange. They may say, no, we can't do that. Yes, unless you are going to argue that God was wrong in setting up kingdoms and giving power to kings and institutions, I want to hear that sermon. I want to hear that the Bible is wrong in doing that because the way our country is set up, it's not set up like kingdoms, but the principles still apply. Whoever is the ruling class, that is who you are to be subject to. Well, we the people are the ruling class. The government is to be subject to us. And as individuals, we are the ruling class. So we can bear the sword. We can use uh, that type of uh, administrative, administrative retribution on the wrongdoer. Verse 5, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. For this, verse 6, For this reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, devout to governing. Pay everyone what is owed, taxes due, taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. And then it goes on to talk about um, loving your neighbor. And uh, that sort of thing. But when we talk about being submitted to, to civil government in America, we have to look at who is the ruling class, who is the ruler that we are to be respectful and authoritative to. And it is us, the people, not the government. The government is the subject. We are the, the, the king in, in this aspect so, a meme that says something like that, you know, I can't kneel to the, uh, a flag that, you know, to a government or however it was that, you know, oppresses me or whatever, that, that's a wrong understanding of America. That is a wrong understanding of your position, which in turn makes your interpretation of Romans 13 and of this understanding incorrect. This is a poor interpretation for the context in which you live. Now, I've heard some people say that um, a lot of modern Christians have replaced the saints of the church with the founding fathers of this country. What do oh, you think about exactly. That? Absolutely. There, be, because of manifest destiny and the type of uh, propaganda and interpretation of history that has been embraced largely by right-wing Christianity in this country, they have identified the United States and the Constitution with the reign of God and with Scripture. And God and Scripture stand over all. Anything that is contrary to the gospel witness in our society, the church has got to stand against. We stand with Christ. We stand with all people of goodwill. And to that, I would say amen, but I would want to qualify that, that Again, as I said earlier, that, you know, the Constitution and what it recognizes within our position, you do have a lot of Christians out there, which is why I, I posed the question the way that I did, because I believe that the people are worshiping the founding fathers, or at least venerating them, let's use that term, as saints, and that the Constitution is, you know, equivalent to the Word of God, which it is not. But when we look at what the Word of God says and our role within this country— 
that's where the difference is. Now, with this understanding of manifest destiny and, um, you know, with uh, that understanding, that's really from uh, the Reformation, from Calvinism, from Protestantism. Uh, John Calvin, in, in his uh, understanding, um, John Calvin had a very uh, big influence on um, socio-political uh, understandings of government and his institutes are what helped to um, uh, mold the understanding of what the United States is uh, by a lot of what he said. And really, you have to go back in, in uh, pre-Reformation to the um, uh, the secularists and the humanists and the, uh, the councils. And uh, there's a very long line that um, comes up from uh, that aspect on how people self-govern and, and what that means. But with John Calvin specifically, you get into predestination, which can get into individualistic predestination, which is where we get this understanding of um, you know us being self uh, Sovereigns, because uh, we are chosen by God, but that's another theology pit altogether. That to say, it's not a revisionist history in any sense of the imagination to say that that's what people believe that they were doing, and what people believe today is consistent with that. If they think that uh, the revisionism comes when you read people like Howard Zinn and um, his uh, terrible um, history, which is more of a commentary on history than an actual history book. And the Constitution, which, by the way, at one time uh, equated being African-American with having only three-fifths of, a, of uh, a personhood, of representation, that is not the type of document that conforms to the gospel. Why did it, why did it do that? Why did they? Three-fifths of a person. Because when, when they were trying to uh, allocate representatives, uh, they uh, counted African-Americans who were slaves at the time as three-fourths of an individual because that added to representation in that district. But they could not say that these were fully people. Otherwise, that would have been an argument against slavery. They were considered non-people yes. by, by the slave owners and, and, and uh, the individuals. Okay, now with what Reverend Chad said when he stepped in here um, is it, I, I'm not exactly sure what he was going at, but it seemed that he was saying that the slave owners were the ones putting in the three fifth compromise. Either way, I want I want to discuss this because the three fifths compromise that was in the Constitution was because as a slaveholder, if all of your slaves were counted. But you did not allow them to vote, and they couldn't vote because they weren't landowners, but yet there would be more representation. That would give you more power. Okay, so the northern states or the non-slave states or you know that aspect of it put the three-fifths compromise in so that it, the power could not be uh, distributed more towards people who were slave owners who couldn't vote. So... If if that was the case, if we didn't have the three fifths compromise, we would have we would still have slavery today. Okay, that is the difference. So it wasn't the slave owners 
that put in the three fifths compromise that that didn't see them as as fully as people as 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 human beings. I mean, there probably were. I'm not going to say that all slave owners are like this, but when you read through the slave narratives of the um, the 1930s that were written with interviews of um, uh, different slaves, there are good and bad people on both sides. Some viewed slaves as to be subhuman, and that is an obvious um, result of an, an evolutionary understanding of uh, you know hierarchy system that they are not as evolved. Um, that is definitely not a uh, Christian understanding, and. Uh, the type of slavery we had in America is not the type of slavery that's talked about in the Bible. Talk, this type of slavery in the Bible is an indentured servitude, and there's a, a jubilee aspect to it where every 49 years they were released. So the, a totally different uh, kind of of slavery. So slavery is not a, a biblical-supported uh, uh, concept, even if people were trying to use the Bible to do that. But um, the slave owners would want them to be counted as full people in order to have more representatives and more delegates and could centralize more power and have their will done. So it was a, um, a move by the founding fathers to count, uh, not necessarily f- the slaves because they wouldn't they didn't want to call them that they they um, differentiated between free persons and non-free persons so non-free persons could be um, for example indentured servants white slaves um, if you read um, I think it's Jim Goad's book the redneck manifesto he goes into the history of white slavery in this country and I think today in in America I want to say that I think there's around like 50,000 slaves, actual slaves. It's usually through human trafficking and um, uh, you know, sexual slaves in, in that sense of, of slavery. But no, we still have slavery going on in this country, and a lot of it is, is due to open borders. But again, that's another theology pit because um, you can, I mean, if you want to, if you want to see the rape trees, you can you can Google that and you can you know look those up that are along our borders. But no, we do have slaves in this country still. But this is um, going back to the three fifths compromise. The reason why that was put in was so that you couldn't as um, a landowner or somebody buy a bunch of people or you know have a bunch of people in subjection or in slavery where they because they were not property owners they were stripping them of their vote and therefore you know let's say you had 100 people in an area and only one person could vote well whatever that one person says goes so the reason why we don't have slavery today is partly due to the three-fifths compromise and one thing that i'd like to go i'd like to talk about is more people know more about people know more about washington and jefferson today than they know about tertullian and origin yes and that's a shock. I would actually want to argue that. I don't think people today know more. <laughs> I, I think that they know equally little about both. I think <laughs> that's be, a good to point. Be, to yes. be honest with you. I yeah. mean, I, I well, know, ch- that's true. I know that's a lot true. of my church history, and I know a lot of my uh, country history, and I can tell you from talking to people that they, they would think that Tertullian made Washington's teeth. They would have no idea. But, oh, you think people in all 54 states? <laughs> <laughs> if you leave out the last three of the 57, yeah, probably. Probably, and, and but that because that, and that honestly brings us into an education problem, both in our schools and in our churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, your clergy, and I don't want this to sound offensive, but I mean, you know, I'm working my way there as, as well. Uh, I don't think that we're doing a very good job educating. 
it's it's very difficult and the church has also often been on the wrong side of history there was a great debate at one time as as whether to not africans and indigenous peoples of any continent even had souls so the church has not always been clean and that was a very broad stroke at the medieval church um, and mostly pointing towards the um, Catholic, Roman Catholic aspect of it. Um, you do have that understanding around the time of the, um, the Inquisition and um, ar- around the time of, um, you know, like when Columbus was setting sail and, uh, the, you know, when Spain and Portugal had a lot of power and a lot of control, you did see that, but, um, that's not to speak of all of Christendom. Uh, at the time. As far as education is concerned, one of the difficulties, I think, is that education of any sort is not valued in this country. Now, perhaps if you're in a big mega church with a couple of thousand people, you might be able to generate interest in adult forums, adult education. When you serve in some of the small churches I've served with, um, I suppose this is a little judgmental, but I get the impression that many people think everything they needed to learn about Christianity, they learned when they were in eighth grade confirmation class, mm-hmm. and nothing more is needed. I was going to ask you about that. With uh, Do you have the ability within your catechesis classes to kind of move in? Uh, uh, outside of the uh, of the standard that what you what you have to teach. Well, absolutely. Um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, to which I belong, does not have as strong statements as the United Methodist Church, but we do have social policy statements. As a matter of fact, our bishop, our Conference of Bishops, came out with a statement recently, signed by all of them, saying that they stood with the students at March for Our Lives. So it is fully within. Not even my right, but my obligation to teach the members of my congregation the fact that the church is concerned about issues in society and that as Christians, we have an obligation to speak up and to participate and to vote, etc. And of course, we must be careful here that we are not getting into a type of liberation theology, which views that the the point of the church is to fight for the injustices for the little people against the government. Again, as citizens of the United States of America, the government is us, and we are not to fight against ourselves. So proper education within a Christian context would have to fall on both the secular and spiritual side. So whenever you're looking at these things and you're discussing uh, the concept of what type of education is needed. I think all education is needed within the church, but specifically in the church, I think we should really focus on uh, our theological education, on our doctrines, on why we believe what we believe. We do a horrible job of that, a very terrible job of it. Um, People need to uh, know their Bibles, understand their Bibles, understand what it is, uh, where it came from. Certain questions are being asked today and they're not being answered. That's why, you know, in the theology pit, I've, you know, we, we did what six months, seven months just on the history of the application of the atonement, why Christians um, believed what they believed in the last 2,000 years on what it meant that Christ died for our sins. And, you know, we did another series on the Bible itself, where it came from, what it is, how is it 
to be interpreted. Uh, these are very important things. It's it's my calling within ministry is in discipleship and within education, and this is something that we need to take seriously in the church. And it is not to be used um, poorly. It is not to be used to push uh, political agendas. Now, to remain completely neutral is an impossibility, but um, if you can do it ironically, and that is the best way to safeguard yourself, what you need to do, uh, as I've done here in this interview, you know, gotten different viewpoints and um, and and let them talk and let them interview. Even though you know you you kind of, you already know my bias, you already know where I'm coming from at, at this point. But I, I'm going to f- let people talk, and I'm going to ferret out which, what they're saying uh, either way. And if, and if you know you catch them in a falsehood, you catch them in a falsehood. There's not much you can uh, do about that. But you know, for example, let's say in the church that you are, you know, you you want to teach on you know the history of uh, the United States of America and the role that you know the student would have as a citizen within the country. And you know, voting is definitely a part of it, and that's an aspect of it. But but you know you have to understand why you're voting and what that means and as far as it means is delegation and that you have the power and you know you really should be teaching um, the Constitution uh, and the Bill of Rights along with uh, that kind of education but then you do start m- moving into this problem of all well, now you treat the Constitution like it's the Bible I, you really can't get around it as an American citizen it and as a Christian you know it is your responsibility to know and understand and help run the country that God has you know placed in your control um, it, it's like with environmental issues you know we know from scripture that you know we were designed and called to take care of the planet okay that I mean that's but things went wrong with with sin and that's why you know we have such a problem with this and such, and such a difficult um you know, understanding. But I mean, again, that's another theology pit, but this is the type of thing that we're, we're looking at whenever we start talking about uh, what it means uh, to, to do education within a Christian context. Now, the United Methodist Church, do you have the same type of freedom or are you a little bit more... Uh, we have to speak what's, at, what's within our book of discipline. Okay. Um, so you don't have as much movement as the LCA? Uh, no, no. But there there is a lot that they have to say about gun violence. There's a lot that they have to say about about uh, personhood, uh, about people's rights, and so on and so forth. So there is a lot of uh, uh, I don't want to say progressiveness, but uh, you know there because uh, there is some conservativeness in there, and I, I it's meant to equal it, you know be have equal voice. But there is a lot that is uh, that is uh, said in our book of discipline about guns and gun violence, and um, I would point people to to that if they want to learn more. Is there anywhere online you can find it? Uh, yeah, you can find it online. Um, uh, UMC.org would have a free copy online. Okay, so of course I had to do a little bit of investigation in this whenever somebody you know uh, gives a uh, citation there. I wanted to go and take a look at it. And since I am not a Methodist um, at all, I mean I'm familiar with you know Methodist theology. Um, um, I you know we've talked about um, Jacob Arminius on the uh, on the theology pit here and what Arminianism has meant for. Um, uh, um, 
denominations, that's the word I'm looking for, for denominations um, like the Methodist uh, denomination. So I, I went to uh, umc.org and they're what we believe uh, about gun violence. It was a little bit difficult to find, um, but I did, I, I was able to just type in the word guns into the search engine and, um, you know, the Book of Re- Resolutions uh, came up. It's called Book of Revolution uh, Resolutions, Our Call to End Gun Violence. And um, I've, I've been looking through it and reading through it, a little bit of misinformation in here, um, but nothing that I, I wouldn't expect. And uh, Reverend Chad was right when he said that it does have a, a progressive bent to it, even though um, he didn't so much need, but it is, it is very left-leaning. Um, with the United Methodist Church being formed um, after uh, the um, uh, United States was formed... Uh, I believe it was in uh, 1968, whenever the United Methodist Church was um, was formed. So, I mean, it's going to have um, uh, certain assumptions that are going to be built into it. And I think that that's where, um, uh, the way that it's worded, I can see a lot of the misunderstandings about um, the citizenry of someone in the United States and, and what that means. Um, the you have to remember uh, education. The education system really, really, really started going downhill in like the last hundred years or 120 years or so in in our country. And um, this this coming out of it, the first thing it does is it um, proof texts in two places: Matthew five nine, which is the um, you know uh, blessed are the peacemakers thing. It's the um, Sermon on the Mount, and then it it uh, goes to Micah four um, verses one through four. I'm not going to read all of them, but this is what they use to be their big um, their big ticket item on curbing gun violence and what gun control means to them. And they use the word gun control in here. This is uh, um, you. You, you, again, read it for yourself, uh, umc.org uh, forward slash what dash we dash believe uh, forward slash gun dash violence. Um, and when you when you read through it, what they're doing is um, what we would what we would say theologically is this is almost looking like a, uh, a post millennial um eschatology that you are ushering in God's kingdom in order to do these things, or you are trying to force it in here now. Now I know they would probably disagree with that, um, that I'm saying that, but Micah's vision is honestly for the second coming of Christ that we're looking at for when the new Jerusalem is established, the new heavens and the new earth. This is, um, you know, uh, this is in the eschaton. Um, and because of that, by them saying that we need to get to that and we need to live that, it it does start to, to wander uh, into that area a little bit. Now, it, some of the things that it, it cites is that uh, violence, um, it says, in so many ways is fueled by fear and self-protection. Okay, g- granted, but um, violence isn't bad and it's making it to sound that it is. Uh, Unless you're going to argue with me that Jesus is not the God of the Old Testament, you can't argue with me that violence is bad. And also, we just went through um, Romans 13 and the the authority that governments have. Violence is is a a necessary part of it. Just like, you know, killing is not wrong scripturally. Murder is wrong. And that's why in the in the Ten Commandments, it's 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 translated, it should be translated, thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill, uh, as most people um, understand it. But it goes on to... Um, 
discuss about uh, small arms and that includes assault rifles and that sort of thing. And it, it has a couple links for small arms um, uh, understandings and, and what they are and um, that the small arm violence contributes to crime, human trafficking, drug trafficking, gender-based violence, uh, racial and ethnic conflict, systematic income inequalities, persistent unemployment, and human rights abuses, among other social maladies. Now, I would agree with that, but that's a broad brush to say that all small arms does that because, I mean, according to what they're saying small arms are, and that includes uh, assault rifles, which we've talked about in this podcast that doesn't exist, but let's just say, um, you know, a, a black rifle, you know, a scary black rifle, um, submachine guns, light machine guns, grenade launchers, portable anti-aircraft guns, anti-tank guns, among other weapons. And they take that from the small arms uh, survey, uh, smallarmsurvey.org, weapons and, and markets slash definitions. Um, and they, and they just talk about, um, how, you know, many countries use this for the hindrance of food and security. That honestly is a global understanding that has nothing to do per se with Americanism and with Americans. Now, because our country is different from other countries, if you do want it to, a, a, a homogeneous understanding here, other countries should be like our country and be representative republics. Okay. We, you know, endowed by our creator with unalienable rights that should be recognized all over the world, but it's not. So there are, you know, certain aspects to that. Now it does have something that's a little bit concerning for me here. And it says that gun violence also greatly affects families and individuals. One of the most prominent forms of gun violence is suicide. Now, again, we've already talked about this, about how we get the suicide numbers in, in America and that, you know, um, out of the like 34,000 deaths per year, only about 16 or 17,000 of them are non-suicide um, deaths. Okay, which which takes that number down dramatically. Now, in a in a country of you know what three hundred and fifty million people, where there are about as many guns as people, but probably only half of them own uh, you know uh, one or more guns. Um, that gives you one hundred and twenty million people, and if you know even even thirty six thousand people out of one hundred and twenty million, uh, that's still a very small number. It's a, that's like point zero 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 seven, something like that. And when you knock it down to, um, uh, you know, the 16,000 per year out of that number, it's like 0.00004%. Like it's such an infinitely small number that it shouldn't even, uh, really be on the radar, but they bring this in for uh, gun violence and then they use suicide numbers from around the world. And I guess it's saying consistent with, you know, the small arms understanding, but here's the big problem. They say that one, nearly 1 million suicides every year, which amounts to more than 3000 people per day. So says the world health organization. So I, I looked at the stats from the World Health Organization, and it has a very nice interactive map that you can look up for um, suicides and um, you know standard rates, and it's it's you know it's kind of nice to do, um, and it's per um, it's suicide rates per one hundred thousand population. 
So out of 100,000 people, how many commit suicide? Now, the United States of America is 19.5 suicide deaths per 100,000 population. I haven't run the numbers on these, so I don't know exactly how accurate they are. But this is a country, the United States, which is a very free country when it comes to guns. Okay, We don't have as strict gun control as other countries. So what if we do go to another country that does have extremely strict gun control? Okay, like a place like, I don't know, Japan. And a lot of people like to point to Japan and say, see, they almost have like no, you know, uh, uh, problem because of their gun control, because of, you know, what they do with guns. And people are allowed to have certain type of guns and they're subject to, um, you know, searches in their homes, which actually the, um, uh, the Methodist um, uh, Book of uh, Discipline. Uh, actually talks against. It says, no, people have the right to their privacy. You can't do that. So they, so the, the United Methodist Church could never push for a type of gun control measure like Japan has because it would actually be in violation of their book of discipline because their book of discipline upholds the, um, the Fourth Amendment of illegal search and seizure. So when you go to these suicide rates and you say, okay, well, 19.5, that's pretty high. What about Japan that has nothing? Well, Japan is 21.7. It has higher suicide rates. So there really is very little correlation between access to guns and suicide rates when you have one country that has more suicides and stricter gun control. Okay, now China, which has, you know, a lot of gun control, has 7.7. Yeah, you know, suicide deaths per you know population. Um, Australia, which you know did their mandatory ban and confiscation uh, program, uh, what like twenty three years ago, I believe. Um, they they're at fifteen point three. Okay, again, we're at nineteen point five. They're fifteen point three, and Japan is is higher than them. Okay, when you start getting into France, which has a very strict gun control problem, they're nineteen nineteen point oh. They are, you know, 0.5 people or 0.5 suicide deaths per 100,000 of the population below us. So what it's telling me is that this has nothing to do with guns. This is a heart issue. And for the um, book of resolution to actually be putting these numbers up and encouraging people to, um, to discuss this in these congregations is a lot of misinformation. Okay. There are, I mean, according to studies that have come out of um, like Florida universities and, and things like that with people, how many people have defensively protected themselves, you know, with guns, those numbers are skewed. They say somewhere between like 500,000 up to like, you know, um, 2 million or 300,000, like 2 million, you know, prevent, um, uh, preventable crimes that guns have been used positively. I don't know about that. I think that that's maybe skewed like a number surveyed because, you know, the uh, Samuel Clemens said there are lies, damn lies and statistics. So on the, the gun advocacy side, I haven't found the numbers to be that high. I have found them to be, you know, maybe in like the hundreds or something in Beaver County. It's like, you know, in the, in the tens 
per year, like something like that, you know, that have been like either justify justifiable shootings or you know justifiable use of of firearms. And um, it's it's really really small. But again, if if your argument is you know if we can save at least one person, we should do it. Well, you know that kind of lends to that. Well, maybe more people should be armed. And I think in Beaver County, the last time I spoke with our um, with the uh, the, the um, oh what's his title the senior attorney in Beaver County the uh, the the chief attorney I can't remember the, the title anyways um, last time I talked to him he said about ten percent of Beaver Countyans uh, have their carry permit. So whether or not they're actually carrying their guns with them is another story. But basically, one out of ten people that you know uh, is licensed to carry a gun or is carrying a gun on them. Now, it goes on to say here in their um, their book of resolutions that. Um, that it says, you know, as followers of Jesus called to live into the reality of God's dream of shalom. Now, shalom means peace, and that is a unified peace, that is a whole peace, and that is a peace that is describing um, everything in, in nature, that is the totality of redemption. Uh, we cannot live in that reality. We can understand that, and that's why uh, Luther said, simulate usted peccator. At the same time, I am justified and I am a sinner. It is the now and not yet yet. It is from the declaration of righteousness that we get from Romans chapter 4, in which God declares the ungodly to be just. Um, chapter 4, verse 5, and in chapter 17, or in verse 17 of chapter 4, goes on to say that we believe in the God who makes the dead alive and calls the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. Um, so, and then in, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, and therefore we have peace with God uh, through Christ. And so, and, and it's, it's through Christ's faithfulness. But what we have here is then they, they give a list after um, talking about why they uh, uh, must address the epidemic of gun violence. And it says, um, so, quote, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in God's path. Therefore, we call upon, unquote, therefore, we call upon all United Methodists to prayerfully address gun violence in their local context. Some of the ways in which to prevent gun violence include the following. Number one, for congregations to make preventing gun violence a regular part of our conversation and prayer times. Gun violence must be worshipfully and theologically reflected on, and we encourage United Methodist churches to frame conversations theologically by utilizing resources such as Kingdom Dreams, Violent Realities, Reflections on Gun Violence from Micah 4, 1-4, produced by the General Board of Church and Society. Now, I don't know if they are only allowed to use this, but you know, if uh, uh, the times that I am available, I will put myself out there for any United Methodist Church that would like me to come and you know uh, speak on um, the gun issues in society. Uh, I'll do my my best on it. I'll do my research on it and and field these questions as ironically as we possibly can on both sides of the issue. Because if you start to get things one sided, you're just going to be in an echo chamber and you're really not going to get anywhere. And I and I would hope that I, I I'm pretty sure that the the clergy recognizes that. I want to say the Reverend Chad recognizes that he seemed to, but whether or not the, um, 
denomination would allow it is another thing, and that I find to be very problematic. Um, if if they if they would number two, it says for congregations to assist those affected by gun violence through prayer, pastoral care, creating space, and encouraging survivors to share their stories, financial assistance, and through identifying other resources in their communities as victims of gun violence and and their families walk through the process of grieving and healing. It's very pastoral, very counseling uh, uh, aspect of it. Number three, for United, for individual United Methodists who own guns as hunters or collectors to safely and securely store their guns and to teach the importance of practicing gun safety. Again, I, I agree with that. I mean, all the children should be taught like the four basic firearm laws of uh, number one, you assume that every single gun is a load is loaded. So you don't touch it. Um, you know, if you see it, you go tell an adult, uh, that's number, you know, number two, but in using guns, you know, you never put your finger on the trigger unless you are ready to shoot. You know what your target is and what lies behind it. You never point your gun at anything ever that you do not wish to destroy. These are just basic, um, gun safety, uh, policies that can be taught to, uh, to children and should be taught uh, to children and people of all ages. I think people should know in a country where it is your right or the right of the citizen to protect himself with a firearm to have that training, whether or not you ever buy a firearm, like ever, like that should be it. Um, number four, for United Methodist congregations that have not experienced gun violence to form ecumenical and interfaith partnerships with faith communities that have experienced gun violence in order to support them and learn from their experiences. Now, I wonder how that works with them saying right here in the beginning of it, right before these, um, these statements, therefore we call upon the United Methodists to prayerfully address gun violence in their local context. Are they considering that their local context? And if they do make partnerships with other United Methodist churches because they have experienced gun violence and this church hasn't, what is the point to uh, talk about gun violence or to talk about gun responsibility? I think it should go both directions, but it's a culture issue. It, it, it really is. It's a culture issue, and it's and it's something that should be discussed. Um, number six, United Methodist congregations to partner with local law enforcement agencies and community groups to identify gun retailers that engage in retail person practices designed to circumvent laws on gun sales and ownership, encourage legal compliance, and to work with groups like Heeding God's Call that organize faith-based campaigns to encourage gun retailers to gain full legal compliance with appropriate standards and laws. This, I'm, I'm sorry, I hate to use the word stupid, but this is like like the stupidest thing I've ever read in my life. This is a federal crime for any retailer, for any, I mean, I've, uh, I know people that own gun shops. Okay. I've talked to them. This is like the, I mean, the ATF is up their butts constantly. You, if you are caught, um, you know, selling to somebody, uh, not according to the law, you lose your your dealer's license, you get fined, you go to jail, you become a felon, you lose everything. I don't know any any gun store that does not engage in this and they even take it one step above because they can deny sale to anybody for any reason. If they decide I don't like your shirt, 
I'm not going to sell you a gun. I don't feel comfortable with it. They can do that. They're within their rights and the ATF will support them in those decisions. They say, I don't, I don't like the guy. He just, something seemed off. He didn't seem right. Or I thought I smelled alcohol. I would not sell him this gun. They are within that right. Okay. They are, I mean, every one of them is in full legal compliance. And a lot of the gun, um, uh, guns that were used in these massacres lately were gained legally. It was the part, it was the fault of the government not following up and not, um, you know, putting these people in jail, taking care of them, or putting their information into the system that these, that these gun um, dealers, you know, these gun sellers use for the background checks. They are all doing it. So I look at something like this and it just makes me wonder, do they have any idea what they are talking about at all? I'm sorry, but number six, United Methodist Church, this is stupid and you should consider, um, you know, re- removing it. Like maybe, you know, when, when you talk about like international law or something like that, but within the United States, this is, the, I mean, this is a, a pretty uh, bad point to make. Number seven, for United Methodist congregations to display signs that prohibit carrying guns onto church property. Okay, this sets you up for litigation. Once you put a sticker in your window that says, I am denying you your constitutional right to self-preservation and something comes in and happens, you are setting yourself up for litigation. And with this being in their... um, uh, uh, with their within their official, this is not like okay. You may have ch- churches that are autonomous. Okay, they're not tied into any particular um, diocese or um, you know, anything like that. Okay, they're not. They're, they're autonomous. Um, they're, they're churches in the area that are like that, and they're they're congregationally run, and the congregation, or maybe they're just pastorally run. You know, and and then they say. All right, we don't want to, um, you know, we, we want to put up these, you know, don't bring a gun in here sticker or whatever. Okay, Pre- make it a gun free zone. Okay, so if somebody comes and shoots that place up, and you have a permit to carry a gun, or here in Pennsylvania, open carry is completely uh, legal and permissible, and but you didn't do it that day because um, you uh, because of this sticker, but you feel obligated to not. Um, to not forsake the fellowship, you know, with other Christians, as Scripture tells you. So you are religiously obligated to be part of a Christian community that then strips you of your constitutional right. That congregation, that pastor, is setting himself up for litigation. If he's not killed in it, that whoever's left, they're going to be sued. All right, that church is going to lose its property. In this situation, not only will that church be sued with the pastors who will probably be sued, um, not only in a um, like in oh what's it called when a bunch of people you know get together and sue, uh, it'll 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 come to me later. But uh, you'll be sued in uh, individually. Um, you will be sued class action. That's what it is. You'll be sued in a class action suit. Um, the church denomination itself will be will be sued, and they will win. They will win. You cannot deny people a constitutional right and not protect them. If you say, okay, look, we would rather you not 
uh, carry a gun here and we have provided security to ensure that and the people agree to it is one thing but if you force that on them and they do not agree with it or they are doing it out of out of this type of mandate and something happens you're setting yourself up for big litigation and you have denied somebody a constitutional right which you know in in other parts you know I, I've read with the you know um, uh, freedom of speech and free, it seems that you uh, hold up a lot of the other parts of the constitution so number seven here while number six is stupid number seven is detrimental this can this can take down your church this is a problem not only that but when you put that sign on your church um the aurora shooter in colorado uh, when he shot up that movie theater he said that he passed up other movie theaters and went to the one that had the gun-free stickers in there because he knew that nobody there would be armed that's what you're doing you're advertising that this i mean please rethink this this is something that you know. This can be this can be terrifying. This can be uh, deadly to people. I mean, we're talking about like gun control here, and I, I get that. And yeah, I, I, the sentiment is good, but this is not well thought out. And you are opening yourself to litigation. Number eight, for United Methodist congregations to advocate at the local and national level for laws that prevent or reduce gun violence. Okay, some of those measures include, here are the measures. Number one, universal background checks on all gun purchases. They already exist. They already exist. I don't know why this is there. Local and national level, they already exist. Universal background checks already exist. I'll say it again. Universal background checks already exist, okay? You cannot go to a gun show and just buy a gun, all right? It, that, that doesn't happen. You go through a background check. It happens. Uh, there are, go onto YouTube and look at undercover videos of people trying to do it to see whether or not you can do it. It's an actual thing. These, they, universal background checks actually do exist, okay? Um, the only thing that they possibly do is like, you know, if you're selling your friend a shotgun, there are still laws to that too. You have to be, if that person, you know, if you know that they're a criminal and you sell it to him, that's a felony. If you buy it for them, that's a felony. If you give it to him, that's a felony. We, we have that. We, we looked earlier at the, uh, at the, um, uh, codes, you know, for, um, the, the legal codes in Pennsylvania, you cannot do that. If you knowingly sell somebody, uh, you know, a gun that they're not allowed to possess, that that's a crime. You're not allowed to do that. If you know you sold it to them and then that, they take it out and they go and shoot some people up and do something with it, you're going to be questioned. You're going to be you're going to be held to that. Okay, um, the ratification of the arms treaty again. That's an international thing. That is not a uh, intranational thing. Um, or a, st or a state thing, I should say, intercommerce thing. Um, ensuring all guns are sold through licensed gun retailers already happens. Okay. Um, like I said, the only thing that, that's different. And, and again, when I say that, this isn't pistols. This is like shotguns, rifles. Okay, we're not talking about, we're not talking about pistols here. All right. Um, if you want to sell a pistol to somebody, you have to go through a dealer. You have to do that. Uh, you can't just get like, um, you know, it, it, you can buy a gun for your, I think it's your, your parent or your, your son or your spouse. Okay. But even then they can't be criminals. You know, you, you, you have to know, but you are allowed to buy, you know, uh, uh for them, you know, and, and as, as a gifting or, um, you know, even like a grandfather giving a grandson a, a, a gun or something like that. But, but, but 
if they are a criminal or if they have mental problems and you are aware of that, that's a crime. Okay, you can't you can't do that. So, um, ensuring all guns are sold through gun licensed retailers is uh, already it already exists. The next one is prohibiting all individuals convicted of violent crimes from purchasing a gun for a fixed uh, time period that already exists. Okay, some people, uh, if it's a federal crime, I don't think that they ever get that back unless they. I mean, they they may be able to, but it's very difficult. Um, but yeah, they they are prohibited for the rest of their life from buying anything other than a. I think it's a muzzle loader, or like a black powder gun. I think that's the only type of gun that they are allowed to purchase or allowed to possess. I don't even think that you're allowed to pay. I mean, you certainly um, couldn't open carry with it. Uh, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't really be stopped in question, but even getting your hands on one would be illegal. Um, as soon as you get into a car or your shirt falls over to your coat falls over, it's considered concealed and you do need a license to be concealed in Pennsylvania. And so that would be a crime, but you wouldn't be able to get a license for carry, um, if you were convicted of um, uh, a, a violent violent crime, I mean, there, this this stuff already does exist. And if you're looking for um, reconciliation within Christ, look at reconciliation for in you know within the government structure too. You should be consistent with that. I mean, they uh, the uh, United Methodist Church does have a section on the death penalty that I scanned really quick, and the reason why they were against it, from what I gathered, is because um, you know it denied someone the um, you know, the time in order to like repent and be reconciled to God. Okay. Well, if they are, if they reconcile themselves back to God, well, then they are restored. And if they are restored, then they should be treated as a brother or sister in Christ who is restored. And the same thing should go with people that have paid their debt to society. Okay. If, if you don't like that, if you don't think that that's fair, if you don't think that that's, you know, equal, well, then I think that there's a schism in thought within your, um, within your doctrine and, and you, you know, you might want to address that. Um, prohibiting persons with serious mental illness who pose a danger to themselves and their communities from purchasing a gun that already exists. We went over that. Um, establishing a minimum age of 21 years for a gun purchase or possession. Okay. Um, that is for pistols for uh, purchase, not for possession. Um, that is the or possession part is problematic because we have hunter training courses for kids that are 11 and 12 years old. At 12 years old, you can go out hunting and stuff. Um, you know, you can you can take your course, you can take your permit. You are allowed to use uh, firearms. You know, at that point, there's nothing against that. So possession, as determined by the law, is you know you taking. Uh, you having it, somebody handing it to you, then possess it and you give it back, even if it is under their control. Um, so that, that if you establish that at 21 years old, um, what does that say for people in the military? You know, they can't, uh, they, they, they then can't use a gun until they're, they're, they're 21. I think that that needs to be uh, looked at. Um, and really the age isn't, isn't the issue. Um, it's what people are doing with it. I mean, people that are shooting places up, they're, they're doing it illegally anyways. They are going, if they're, if they're going to illegally attain a gun anyways, this purchase age thing is not going to, um, help. It's not going to solve any problems at all. All it does is make, uh, law abiding citizens who you treat them like criminals until they're 21 years old. That's, that's all you do. You actually deny them, uh, their constitutional right. So you are saying that some people are more deserving of rights than other people are. And I believe that that is also 
against um, the the doctrines of the United Methodist Church that you can't pick and choose what rights people should have. So I would I'd be careful on that aspect of it. Banning large capacity ammunition magazines and weapons designed to far, fire multiple rounds each time the trigger is pulled. Number one, large capacity ammunition magazines do not uh, influence the function of the firearm. Okay, um, it, 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 whether something is, is a multiple rounds is either a, a burst understanding where it's you know three bullets at a time or full auto where it's until the magazine is empty. Uh, that has no bearing on the capacity. If you have one bullet in your magazine and put it on full auto, it's going to fire until that magazine is empty. If you have two bullets, same thing. It doesn't matter. The, the number of uh, uh, ammunition that's in the magazine does not have anything. So banning large capacity magazines, which is undefined here, um, will do absolutely nothing. Zero. It will do nothing. Um, uh, and weapons designed to fire, fire multiple rounds each time the trigger is pulled, there already is a ban on that. It happened in 1986. You cannot get any fully automatic weapons that were made after 1986. You would have to buy it from a private seller or a private dealer that would have one. You would have to have special licenses and stamps from the government. You would have to be on the FBI's database. I think you have to subject yourself also to um, ATF inspections if they um, if, if they want to. Um, and I think to get your hands on a fully automatic rifle it starts at like $10,000. It is not a cheap thing to do and it's already illegal. So I don't know why that's sitting there whatsoever. That was something that uh, Ronald Reagan um, uh, signed into law. Uh, promoting new technologies to aid law enforcement agencies to trace uh, crime guns and promote public safety. Not really sure exactly what that means. The promote public safety stuff, that's, I mean, that's that's fine. You know, I, I, I can get that. I can understand that. Trace crime guns, I don't understand what that means unless they're trying to talk about, like, you know, a stamp on that, you know, uh, that is made on, on a primer, you know, as the cartridge is extracted, um, after a round has been fired, which is an impossibility to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't really know what they're getting at with that. Anyways, um, so that's the, that's the the big part of this that um, Reverend Chad was talking about when whenever I went and and looked up what he said and it's problematic. I think that um, theologically it's problematic. I think it might be um, a, a bit eisegetical in the uh, in the hermeneutic that is used there. Uh, but depending on uh, the theology that is employed, uh, they may see it as um, legitimately exegetical. But again, uh, I would I would take issue with it. Um, also, within the um, uh, the United States and what a citizen is and those sort of things, uh, I, I think that they're setting themselves up for litigation. I think that they have a lot more problems than what they're looking to solve, and they really, really better be careful with this because um, I, I, you know, people who are non Christians. I'll take the worst of all Christians, and that's what they exemplify, as uh, uh, Pastor Kim did uh, earlier with um, by saying that the church didn't view some people as having souls. Not all the church did that. That's a broad brush, but that's what people do. So um, back back to the interview. That was, that was a big rant, but I had to go through what he recommended that we take a look at. All right, perfect. Thank you very much. Um, now with the um, solution. Can I just, can oh, I just sure, add sure. one thing to what Chad said? Yeah. I, I want to make clear that the 
issue that we're talking about today, the preponderance of weapons that can inflict multiple casualties being available to too many people, this is not a conservative versus a progressive issue. And I absolutely agree here. This is an issue of an American issue or an un-American issue. This is both, first and foremost, a common sense issue. And for those of us who are people of faith and strive to live the command to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, once again, allowing weapons that can inflict mass casualties into the hands of people who should not have them uh, is problematic. It's not, polit- it's not political. It is life-centered and gospel-centered. Now, the problem with this is that nobody on the other side is arguing arguing that everybody should have guns and that every you know everybody's in entitled to them at all to love your neighbor also means to protect them as somebody who is a shepherd of a congregation you protect them as your neighbor you love your neighbor as yourself you protect them as you would protect yourself you would lay down your life for them and protect them so Nobody is advocating that anybody who wants a gun should be able to get as many guns as much as they want, but any law-abiding citizen that wants to protect himself and his neighbors should be allowed, without any resistance from the government, to get whatever he wants, because he's not going to use it in a criminal way. That, especially as a Christian... That should be, I mean, I don't want to say it should be a litmus test, but, you know, that's, that's, uh, nobody, nobody is making that argument. That is a, that's a sort of a false assumption. Oh, I mean, what do you, well, let me, let me change it up a little bit so you're not kind of echoing the same thing. Um, what type of responsible measures should be put in place that um, the church can help with? I think that the church needs to educate its uh, its constituents and uh, members. Um, I believe that the church needs to speak out on these issues. I, I think it's uh, too often we are silent on these issues. We are afraid of blowback on these issues, and we have to be prophetic. We can't be uh, afraid of what's uh, of the uh, of uh, the response from the other side. As uh, someone has often told me, the the joy of the prophet is in thus saith the Lord. So the joy is. Is, is speaking out. It's not uh, whether or not I can keep my job. It's it's what is right and what is good. Uh, uh, so many people who are on the right side of history have uh, have lost their jobs, lost their 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 calls, uh, and uh, be, because they have spoken out. And we can't be afraid to do that. Okay. And how do you feel about um, Christian institutions like? Liberty University, for example, that is, you know, encouraging people to you know, arm themselves on their campuses and to bring it. I mean, is that is it, it, do you find that to be consistent or inconsistent with Scripture? I probably know your answer already, but uh, I mean, but that's something that we're facing in our our country today. And how do you how do you see that that fits? Well, it's it's actually complicated. I mean, as you said, you could probably guess my position, but I think about in the garden when Jesus was arrested and Peter struck off the ear of of the slave. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, "Put away your swords." And yet later 
on, at a certain point, the disciples said to him, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, that is enough. Now, did he mean two swords are enough? That's all you mean, you need. Or did he mean that's enough? Don't talk to me about swords. I don't know. It's a matter of interpretation. And if it's a matter of interpretation, it is what we do here on the Theology Pit. So let's get into this. Okay, so we're talking about the arrest of Jesus and what happens. Now, she brings that up first, but the um, the sword issue, um, is it comes before it. And that is um, found in the uh, Gospel of Luke verse um 20 you know where am i at up oh, i just just had a second go uh luke 36 um where it says uh and those uh, and the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one um, and then, you know, so they said in verse 38 so they said look lord here are two swords he told them it is enough now he didn't scream, it's enough, don't talk to me about it. Okay, so if that's a bad interpretation. So, uh, Pastor Kim, I'm letting you know, that is an improper interpretation. You know very well that if an exclamation point was needed, then it would be um, multiple words. Like the, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, or verily, 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 or truly, truly, I say to you, whenever an, and something emphatically is stated, you do get a, uh, a, a multiple, because they didn't have uh, punctuation. Uh, in in Koine Greek, whenever uh, whenever they were writing, so there are ways to emphasize that. And if he says, "Don't talk to me about it anymore," which would be weird, you know. Which he asked them, you know, "Do you have a sword? If you don't, sell your cloak and go buy one." And then you know, because they're saying that, yeah, you sent us out before, and we, you know, we relied on nothing. It's like, okay, good. If you, you know, the one who does not have a sword sells cloak and buy one. Okay, look, hey, we have we have two swords. All right, it's enough. You know, I don't I don't see how it's a it's it's a, a, a screaming type of thing. And when Peter pulls out his sword and uses it, you know, Christ says to him, you know, put your sword away, uh, for those who live by the sword die by the sword. That means an aggressive use of the sword, not a defensive use of the sword. So weapons for defense, Jesus is perfectly fine with. So um, this, if you'd like a modern translation of, um, you know, Luke uh, 36 would be, um, Jesus says, uh, the one who has no AR-15 must sell his cloak and buy one. That would be a a more modern translation, to be truthfully honest. Um, So this understanding of um you know it's it's ambivalent depending on your interpretation is is not quite correct and i would i i would have to uh correct you on that and um you know almost go so far as to ask you to repent of, of that because this is the word of god that we've that we've been looking at and we're doing our best to understand it and to exegete it and not allow the the politics to to play into it so as we look at these verses that's what's uh coming out of it and we saw just the other day that a security officer in a school did shoot dead an assailant who had already shot two people and i remember working with despite that 
the way of Christ is peace. And I don't know what I would do if someone attacked me. I suppose my human self-protection would cause me to attempt to defend myself or to defend an innocent. I have to say, out of all the people that I talked to that day and all the things that I I witnessed, um, I was most impressed with Pastor Kim, and I appreciate her saying that and and addressing that 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 level of concern uh she did some other things i'm going to talk about later but she uh impressed me probably the most in um the christ-like way that she was engaging with people and i and i do want to say that i really appreciate her acknowledging that she would do that and i think for self-preservation as you mentioned she has that right that has been given to her by God, that is recognized in the Constitution, and she shouldn't uh, apologize for that or feel bad about that, about protecting someone else. I know that if you asked her, would you, you know, if, if somebody came in and, you know, and they had a gun, they came into her congregation and said, um, if you let me shoot you and kill you, I, pr- I, w- I will leave and no one else will be hurt. Would you lay down your life? I guarantee she would do it. She absolutely would to save all those people, even if there was one person sitting in her pew. She is that type of Christian. She is that type of person. She is that type of pastor. And uh, she, I give, I really do give her a lot of credit for honestly addressing that in and in. But to, on a wholesale basis, uh, invite a student body to be armed, and once again to equate that with a Christian position as opposed to perhaps a practical position. It's a difficult question. I I would agree with that. Um, I think the the answer is too often uh, arm yourselves and not often enough as what 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 is the common sense thing to do. Um, and and with the, with the thing that you know with Jesus talking about the swords, another thing we have to remember as as theologians is the prophets. And Jesus was a prophet. He was the prophet. Uh, one of the things that the prophets used were things such as sign acts. And uh, he he might have very well been using a sign act when he said two is enough because you know even though they have weapons, they did not use them. I would have to uh, disagree with this hermeneutic here. I, that, there is nothing in that that is pointing it to being a sign act whatsoever. That um, definitely seems to be a, um, a, a part of the historical narrative. Uh, that does not m- mean to, uh, need to be a symbolic you know, act in, in that sense, especially since we know that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He is consistent um, throughout his being and throughout his life. He, that, that is what makes him God. So, um, no, I, I don't think that, I, I don't see anything in there that says that that is a, uh, a sign issue. How often do the apostles uh, use weapons in the book of Acts? I can't think of once. Not once. They struck down a guy with 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 calling down the thunder, but <laughs> a guy and a guy and his wife. Well, and I think of the first martyr, Saint Stephen, who, as he was being stoned to death, said, echoed the words of Jesus, "Father, forgive them." So none of the other Christians who presumably were standing by came to his defense, if there were any there, but they were peaceful. 
And it wasn't until uh, the legalization of, Christ of Christianity under Constantine that Christians were even allowed to be members of the army. So that tells us something. Yeah, well, I don't think uh, Constantine didn't legalize Christianity. He signed the Edict of Milan in 313 that allowed it to be a, a recognized religion. It wasn't until uh, Theodore, about yes, 100 late, years yes, later, that's that, true, it, yeah, that, it that it became, became the official religion. You're on the theology pit here, so I'll, okay. I'll have people sending me emails. <laughs> that's good. It's been a while since I've been Now, like Germany. I said, I do give uh, Pastor Kim a lot of credit. And, um, you know, perhaps I was a little harsh earlier in saying that she should repent of that. But it's just, uh, it, it, it's difficult when you get into hermeneutics and you uh, say things, especially if that would be something that was said from the pulpit. I'm just not sure what that meant. It's a matter of interpretation. But that's, that's me being too harsh. I apologize for that. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. SamsonStick.com.